them. My kind round them up and the judiciary sorts them out. The owlish New Mexico judge and I didn't come close to seeing eye to eye on this case, though we were both deeply disturbed by the crime. I could tell by the way he set his jaw and spoke through clenched teeth that he was angry about what happened. But me, I was torn apart. I squirmed in a creaking chair that in no way was designed to accommodate my six-foot-five-inch frame. I spent years in these places, and they all had the same stale feel. The architects had tried to warm this Albuquerque courtroom. There was plenty of lacquered wood paneling and trim to impart a reverent air, acoustic ceiling tiles to absorb random wailing, microphones everywhere to make sure everybody heard the horror of what was being said padded seats in the jury box like you'd find in a fancy movie theater. But the designers failed. This was a sad, cold place where every day the countless variations of human tragedy played out their last act. Build courtrooms as fancy and modern as you like. I'd rather be anywhere but inside one, especially on that day in February 1992. Sitting at the defendant's table in his prison coveralls was a deeply troubled 28-year-old man on trial for a senseless, unpremeditated double homicide. Local authorities had found two boys shot to death in the desert, and they wanted this third one to pay for it. Both victims were homosexuals, which allowed the prosecutors to up the ante and classify the offense as a hate crime. Local authorities had apprehended two suspects. One proved to be the faster talker. The other sat in chains in front of this judge. The defendant and I flinched when the judge pounded his gavel. I've put hundreds of people in the defendant's predicament, but never in New Mexico, a place that has always been special to me. In the 1950s, I cowboyed on the Bell Ranch in the state's northwest corner. I worked cattle operations like it on the sea of grass that stretches across the southern plains. I broke horses branded yearlings, and rode fence as I entered manhood, steeped in the culture and legends of the American West. While Eisenhower was still president, economic circumstances dictated that I had to leave that world behind. Thirty years later, I returned to the lonesome places, the big country of southwest Texas. I make my living there now, and I don't expect I'll ever leave it. While I watched this trial run its course, though, I was hundreds of miles out of my jurisdiction hundreds of miles from home. I didn't know it, but I was about a year away from retiring in protest. I didn't see that coming any better than I'd imagined my appearance in a murder case in New Mexico. I was struck, despite years of my best efforts to connect with the defendant, by how little we had in common. The only thing we could agree on was that he had probably thrown his life away. I knew better than most how ruthless the justice system could be. The judge was going to drop the boom on that kid. Still, I prayed for the court's mercy. In fact, I took the oath and testified to several reasons the defendant deserved it. In 1992, I was an active officer in the oldest and most legendary law enforcement agency in the United States. As a Texas Ranger, I've always understood that I was part of a rich, proud tradition. I had drained the last drop of blood from my body to uphold it. The Rangers have been the most effective, independent law enforcement agency in history. We evolved perfectly attuned to our time and place, for Texas has long been a sort of human Galapagos, an unsettled country of conflicting cultures and social contradictions, a rugged, ragtag region born with wars raging on two disputed borders.
Young Texas battled her enemies for five straight decades, pausing only to send her sons to fight in America's wars. The Tejanos, the pioneers of Mexican descent, fought horse Indians over a century before Anglos ever set foot in this country. Such violence created a special breed. Unlike most of the American West, the Texas frontier wasn't settled by trappers, miners, and mountain men. The family farmer settled Texas, often in neighborhoods claimed in blood by the Comanche, Kiowa, and Lapan Apache, setting the stage for one of the most desperate and horrific racial and territorial contests in human history. West of the Colorado River, the rain played out. After the farmers defeated the Plains tribes, the droughts rose up and thunderheads gave way to clouds of pale dust. Such harsh conditions bred the best and worst of humankind. Weary of all the bloodshed, the people demanded order before law. In a tradition dating back at least a thousand years, the young and the brave hunted down their people's enemies wherever they were. In the 1870s, such men wore a silver star cut from a Mexican cinco peso coin. In 1966, I pinned one on my chest. Change came quickly for the Rangers during my tenure. Texas evolved into an urban society. My children's generation seemed to care less about traditions that were sacred in the house where I was raised. In the 1960s, the long-disputed Texas-Mexico border erupted in the fight for civil rights. The drug culture gave rise to drug lords, ruthless killers with more money and power than many third-world countries. Nothing in my Depression-era upbringing on the high plains had prepared me for any of this. And yet there it all was, snarling at every Texas Ranger straddling the past and present. Mix all that social commotion with your run-of-the-mill crimes in the Texas borderlands, contraband whiskey and dope smuggling, armed robbery, gambling, prostitution, livestock wrestling, burglary, gangs, and murder. And you can see why my plate was full. Then this New Mexico murder case took possession of my life. Suddenly I was way out of my league. I should have been consoled by the many blessings that came my way. How many country boy cops make it to the movies? I played the sheriff in Tommy Lee Jones's production of The Good Old Boys. I had a cameo role as an Air Force officer in Blue Sky. I posed for one of the most successful covers of Texas Monthly Magazine. I was featured in articles in Life and Rolling Stone. I spent three weeks preparing Nick Nolte for the lead role in Extreme Prejudice. His costume for that movie was an exact replica of how I dressed every day for work. I didn't care much for the movie, but by God, Nolte looked great. Folks began to recognize me after all this. I looked around, and it appeared that I had become a little bit famous. My job as a ranger lay all of that at my feet. In the mid-1980s, I was transferred to the Big Bend country. I patrolled the largest and by far the most beautiful jurisdiction of any ranger in the state. My family had everything we had ever hoped for. My wife and I bought a home with a view at the base of the Del Norte Mountains. She earned two master's degrees and settled into a fulfilling career in education. After overcoming the tragic accidental death of his best boyhood friend... My oldest son was thriving in the Marine Corps. My youngest boy was a student athlete and scholar and would soon join me in law enforcement. My career was at a pinnacle. My life seemed full. I felt like I had accomplished something in this world, and my work had made a difference. I looked out my window and saw God's hand at work all around me in the form of an Ocotillo cactus in full bloom after a rare summer shower 
or a black-chinned hummingbird damn near pecking at my nose. And I was a part-time movie star, too. Who could ask for more? But being a good ranger exacted a price. The phone always rang. I slept little. I drove a lot. I spent days away from home on manhunts and stakeouts. I slept under a canvas saddle bedroll as often as I did next to my wife. I missed far too many important moments in the lives of my handsome sons. As I sat in that New Mexico courtroom awaiting the judge's ruling, I was crippled with guilt. I couldn't help but wonder if maybe my job had asked too much of me, if maybe I'd been away from home too often, if I loved being a ranger more than being a husband and father. I don't believe this judge listened to a word of my testimony. I guess I don't blame him. As is so often the case, the crime contaminated the lives of people beyond its initial victims. I understood the anger of the families who lost their loved ones. I was certain that their terrible grief held more sway with the bench than my pleas for mercy. The judge glared at the young defendant and ordered him to rise. It was a tough year for my family and me but I would soon see worse. We were losing the war on drugs. The crimes on the border grew more violent. My cherished Texas Rangers were about to be diminished by political meddling, a slap in the face to me and my fellow officers and to the Ranger tradition itself. Before my head cleared, a trusted colleague who I thought was my friend and who had once been such a comfort to me when my family was in crisis betrayed me. Because of our close association, his crimes cast a long shadow over my reputation at a time when I leaned on it most. Worst of all, my wife and I had to watch helplessly as the justice system was unleashed against our home.